0: Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and communications manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today, I'm here with John Farrell, who is a co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, as well as the director of our Energy Democracy Initiative. And I'm glad you're here today, John, because it's looking a little apocalyptic out there. We've got fires and smoke and orange skies and hurricanes, and God knows what's coming <laughs> at us tomorrow. <laughs> so it seems like a good time to talk about climate change, that that little problem.
1: Yeah, it's, I, th- I love that idea that, you know we just have this enormous force if you will that we're contributing to and just we call it our little problem
0: <laughs> starting to think that you know it might be an issue for us so in, you know in actuality it seems like a very big problem for you know a global issue for everyone but we're ILSR so can you talk about why we need action on the local level and what advantages there are to local efforts regarding clean energy and addressing climate change issues?
1: Yeah, I, I think really in the last decade, what we've seen is that in particular because our federal government in the United States has been pretty dysfunctional when it comes to clean energy and climate policy, that a lot of the burden of taking action has fallen on cities and states. What you see happening in cities in particular is that you have relatively progressive populations. So folks who are interested in taking the science at face value and doing something about it, and with enough kind of political will around that to make a commitment to doing something significant. So you see cities, over 100 cities now in the United States with representing about a third of the total country's population have made some sort of very bold commitment to 100% renewable electricity sometime in the next decade or two. So that's probably the biggest thing that we're seeing is making some really significant commitments. And then underneath that commitment, we're actually seeing cities both try to build out serious plans for achieving that goal, which is complicated, and we can get more into that, but also some cities even reaching that goal or getting uh, well on their way toward that goal. So we're seeing a lot of ways in which communities in which cities are able to actually move the chains, make some progress on climate change despite the fact that our federal government has really not taken a serious interest in doing something about it.
0: So you say it's, it's complicated for cities to actually achieve these goals. Has it happened anywhere? Has anyone reached 100% renewable electricity? And is there a reason why or why it is complicated?
1: Yeah. Well, there's a couple of prominent examples. One is Greensburg, Kansas. In that case, it was aided by a tornado that literally leveled the town. And so when they rebuilt, Helpful. they thought, hey, we could <laughs> we could do this in a better way. And so they built some wind turbines to produce the electricity that serves on an annual basis all of the community's needs. Now they're a relatively small town, and they did own their electric utility. And that actually really is the common theme that we're seeing. So another city, a larger city that has also succeeded in reaching 100% renewable electricity is Burlington, Vermont. We actually spoke with some folks from there, the mayor and the head of their electric utility. And their success was in part due to common clean energy sources like wind and solar, but also a biomass plant that they built a number of years ago that burns like waste wood and stuff from the forestry industry there. So it was a a combination of resources that the utility was able to put together to reach that 100% goal. But really, it was the fact that, you know, whether it was Greensburg or Burlington or, or, or many other cities now that have made progress on this, Georgetown, Texas is another one. It was the fact that the city owned its electric company. It was just another department in the city. And so when the elected officials said, hey, folks here are telling us this is a really important thing for them that we should pursue, they were able to turn over and say to the electric department, figure out how it works, make it happen. Whereas in most major cities in the United States, in most cities in general, they don't own the electric utility. It's a private company. It might be regulated by the state or it might be a cooperative. There are 2,000 municipal utilities. Uh, most of them are pretty small cities. And so I, I believe that's about one in 10, maybe maybe one in eight cities across the country does own their utility, but the vast majority don't. And and that lack of control really does make it a lot harder to make progress on cleaning up the electricity system, of course, but also more broadly on climate change, electricity is where we're going when it comes to the fuel we're gonna use of the future because we can make it renewably and and cleanly. And so if you can't control your electricity system, it would be a lot harder. So I I think one thing that might be helpful actually for folks is we have a clip of that interview with the mayor and the head of the electric department from Burlington, where they talk about why it was that they were able to get to that 100% goal, that might be helpful in terms of understanding that.
2: I think um, one of the interesting things to me about this Net Zero Roadmap effort is having such a a big public release. I've had anecdotal examples when I go to a coffee shop, when I'm talking to my neighbors, people who have taken in what this goal is and have embraced it and are thinking about different things in their own life. Should we get heat pumps? Should we uh, get an EV? Should I take the bus more? Should I look at getting an electric bike, for example? I've heard all those conversations. So I think for communities, just setting the goal and getting it out there that that's a shared goal, as the mayor talked about with political will, is a really powerful tool. I think on the utility side, I agree completely that there are opportunities for innovation with investor-owned utilities, as well as public power, as well as cooperatives. Green Mountain Power is a great example. In Vermont, we've got great utilities doing work. I think one of the challenges that needs to be looked at is utility regulation. We in Vermont uh, have a creative regulatory structure that allows our utilities to make investments in rebates and incentives and programs that help reduce fossil fuel use in the heating and transportation sectors. I think as a nation, we want our utilities to compete because we have a cleaner source of energy, generally speaking, than petroleum or you know other fossil fuels. We want our utilities to compete for market share with EVs and with cold climate heat pumps. And we want regulatory structures that are going to properly incentivize that competition. Utilities are regulated monopolies when it comes to providing electric service. But in the transportation sector, for example, we're essentially upstarts that are competing against an entrenched incumbent industry with a lot of capital available. So I think we need utility regulatory structures around the country that match the ambition that we have to uh, decarbonize through electric technologies.
3: Well, I think it was maybe possible to do through a different structure, but probably would have been much less likely. I think it's not an accident that it was a city with a publicly owned utility that got there first. And I say that because, you know, I've come to think there were really two essential ingredients To reaching the goal. One was political will. It was a decision back in 2004 first for the city to stop purchasing nuclear energy and to replace it with a goal of getting to 100% renewables. Um, That was the essential first step. The city was only buying approximately 25% renewables at that time. And in 2014, a decade later, uh, I had the really privileged honor of being the mayor as we completed that journey and purchased a hydroelectric facility that got us over the final, that that milestone, that threshold. That political will was essential. It was sustained throughout that decade period of time. The other element of it was excellent technical expertise at the Burlington Electric Department. I think with a a city-owned utility, the directness of, uh, uh, of setting a goal that, um, you know, is it some level political uh, it was easier to achieve than probably would have been likely in a some kind of corporate setting where you have to balance that kind of goal, um, maybe more explicitly or in, in different ways against uh, shareholder profits and, and whatnot. So I, I think it's no accident.
0: That was Burlington Mayor Moreau Weinberger and Darren Springer, General Manager of Burlington Electric, discussing their city's commitment to 100% renewable energy and why a city-owned utility was so important to their success. For communities who do have this control, is have they always had it? Is there some kind of reason why not very many com- communities control their electric utility?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I I just find the history of how cities, some cities have control and some cities don't, fascinating. Because what it really comes down to is in the wild west, if you will, of the beginnings of the electricity system at the early parts of the 20th century, you've got multiple competing private enterprises building grids. You have probably a fair amount of bad behavior on behalf of those companies who are all just madly trying to get market share to string new wires and it's a mess too because you have multiple companies trying to like wire up different parts of the city and these grids don't even work together and so in that craziness you have some industry barons who realized hey that a strategy as for private companies to survive this is going to be to cut a deal with the state and to say if we can have a monopoly over a certain community then then we can provide that service and we can do it cost effectively so that negotiation led to a lot of communities where you had only one utility then. You didn't have competition anymore, but it never really took away the other power that cities always had, which is if that one private provider didn't do a good job or was charging excessive rates or other things, they could always take it over. Most most cities that own their utility system took it over 100 years ago or more at this point. So it's something that they've had for a long time that was at at the dawn of the electricity era and was either done to preempt the kinds of problems they saw with the crazy competition the beginning of the electricity system or to discipline a private utility that was doing a terrible job. In fact, Franklin Roosevelt used to call municipalization, when a city takes over its utility, the birch rod in the cupboard that you use to discipline those private companies or that you have available to discipline those private companies that don't do a good job. And so For Again, for most cities that have their utility, they've had it really since the electricity business was started.
0: Um, You said Wild West, so I've pictured this whole story taking place on horseback, like electricians (laughs) with wires (laughs) Uh, walking their horses around town and fighting each other. Anyways, uh, probably not exactly how it went down.
1: Well, well, to be fair, (laughs) at the time we were stringing wires for electricity, we did not have internal combustion vehicles really, or trucks or things like that. So it is very plausible that the first wires, spools of wires that they were stringing up were in fact in wagons pulled by horses.
0: (laughs) It's a great image. But how about in the present day? So we are still seeing cities who are taking this action to take over existing electric utilities, right? Or at least attempting to do so. Can you talk about where that has happened or is happening or has been attempted?
1: There are a number of communities that are doing it. It's it's not terribly popular, frankly. But what I would say is that in the last decade, we've seen a lot more communities exploring the idea. So on this like spectrum of looking into it, talking about it in a city council meeting, doing a feasibility study, we're seeing a growing number of communities who are at least asking themselves the question, should we be looking at this idea of taking over our electric utility because the private provider is not meeting the goals that we have, whether that's for affordability or for clean energy or for many other reasons. There are several prominent examples. Boulder, Colorado really stands out, in my mind, as sort of the North Star of of municipalization efforts for a number of reasons. Number one is they've been at it for almost a decade. Their initial ballot initiative, which we covered on ILSR's energy program and several articles that we wrote and in interviews with folks from Boulder at the time, was Narrowly, It narrowly passed. Uh, they had to overcome several attempts by the utility to shut down the process, but it was really driven initially by the city's recognition back in 2010 and 2011 that there was no way that the private company was going to help them meet climate change. They had in fact just finished constructing an incredibly large, one of the largest coal plants in the country, just outside the city that they intended to operate clearly until 2050 or 2060 or beyond. And so they were looking at this and saying, we want no part of this. We don't want to be helping pay for this. And we're not going to be able to meet our climate and and clean energy goals if we don't get rid of the utility. Anyway, we do have a great clip here of Jonathan Cohen. We did an interview with him a couple of years ago about Boulder's persistence in pursuing municipalization. And he talks, I think, really passionately about some of the things that were important to the city that they couldn't just get even if the utility changed its tune. Like Even if the utility closed its coal plants, et cetera, the truth was Boulder wanted to see the economic rewards of this clean energy transition. They wanted to see solar projects and wind projects built in their community. They wanted to see energy bills bills lowered in their community. and Those were things that they didn't think they could get if they simply went back to getting service from the incumbent electric company.
0: Here's Jonathan talking about Boulder's municipalization efforts.
4: The majority of us uh, in in the city are pretty agnostic on how we get there. We developed a whole series of goals, one of which is access to renewable energy. Uh, but there are other commitments that were made and other goals that related to uh, Price stability and, um, you know, looking at high levels of reliability, being able to work with entrepreneurs and our uh, local energy companies to test and model some of their devices and technology And, and really shifting the notion of what a utility does. Uh, and becoming more of a service provider rather than the, the seller of the commodity, which is a kilowatt hour. And there's been a lot of talk about the utility of the future, uh, not just here in Boulder, but across the country, as, as markets shift and as the de- desires shift and as customers become more literate on choice. So it's always been our aim to really figure out how the utility functions in a, in a much different way. Now, you bring up a really critical point, which is... We knew Excel Energy was going to move in the direction that we has all, we've always hoped they would move in terms of procuring more clean electricity, more clean electrons, and offering that to consumers. But it matters how they do it in terms of ownership structure. So as we think about a decentralized model, one which uh, everyone has the ability to have a power plant on their roof, has the ability to overgenerate and sell or donate excess power, that whole transactive energy concept how we start to harmonize the components of electrification of our thermal system, electrification of our transportation system. Um, Those are really, really cutting-edge things that we all hear about. And the utility plays a central role in that. So we've always said... Where we need to go is one uh, that a utility is that facilitator and it enables those kind of uh, new a new marketplace, so to speak. So Excel is moving in the right direction. The question is, are they going to get there far? Are they going to get far enough? Are they going to get there fast enough? And this last round of bids and the selection of of their resources and their last ERP just in the past couple of weeks really is exciting. It's exciting to see that the market has responded and it is now much, it's actually cheaper to build new wind and include storage than it is to run existing coal plants in the state of Colorado.
1: That is extraordinary.
0: That was Jonathan Cohen, the Regional Sustainability Director for Boulder, Colorado.
1: So as you can see, Boulder obviously had these like really concrete things that they were thinking about in this. And what's really interesting, actually, is that since that interview was done, Boulder now is going to have a settlement agreement. With Excel Energy, that's going to be on the ballot this fall to not go ahead and do a city takeover. And it's, uh, if you, there is a lot of robust conversation among like energy nerds about this, frankly, where some people are like, see, it was just a big waste of time. But ultimately, the truth of the matter is that Excel Energy, which is this big, Monopoly utility company serving Boulder, but they also serve places like Minneapolis, Minnesota. They have some service territory down in New Mexico, all where they have no competition. They really didn't start turning the ship toward clean energy until communities like Boulder and Minneapolis started talking about municipalization and, and explaining explicitly that the reason behind it was they wanted more clean energy. And so I, I, we can talk more about that in a little bit, but I think it's important to note that Boulder's Efforts are not in vain. That even though it did cost them quite a bit of money, and even though it took a long time, uh, that they have managed to reach an agreement. The fact that they've managed to reach an agreement with the utility is not that they're giving up, but that they actually have finally been given what they've been asking for. And we see other cities trying to do the same thing. So Decorah, Iowa, also had municipalization on the ballot. It it failed to pass by four votes. So. As we look forward to the 2020 election, I would like to encourage you, everybody listening to vote because your vote can matter very much. But it was a similar uh, effort there where the rates that they were being charged were much higher than for other utility customers in Iowa. And they felt like they could do better if they had a city-owned utility as well as had a utility that was headquartered in Decorah as opposed to one headquartered in a different state that had their own shareholders, you know, distant shareholders that they're interested in serving. We actually did an interview with Andy Johnson and a few other folks who were leading up that municipalization campaign. We won't play a clip today, but if folks want to listen in, they can hear more about what was motivating that municipalization campaign. What we will share a clip of, though, is we just did a brand new interview with Jamie Valdez from Pueblo, Colorado, about that city's efforts to municipalize. They're also based in Colorado, like Boulder, but served by a different utility, Black Hills Energy. And for them, it was about affordability, really, that the utility that had come in there had been, uh, it was like a recent switch of utility ownership. I think they had bought out a co-op or something like that. And the utility built a brand new gas plant that was proving to be very expensive and had significantly raised rates for a community that had a lot of low-income folks. Pueblo used to be a mining town and a lot of the mining jobs have dried up. And so affordability is a big issue for them. So I do have this clip from Jamie Valdez talking about, not just the aims that they had in their municipalization campaign, but also the fight that the utility put up. They were outspent 50 to 1 by the utility in that campaign. And so in a two-month period between when they surveyed residents of the town and had a fairly significant majority in favor of forming a city utility, the utility spent $10 million basically to advertise the hell out of the community and to bury the municipalization about an initiative that then ultimately was not successful.
0: All right, here's Jamie Valdez of Pueblo.
5: Black Hills Energy and through their political action arm which was called Pueblo Cares spent above $1.5 million to defeat our effort. Compared to our campaign was able to raise through grassroots efforts about 31,000 so i think those numbers right there pretty much say it all especially since like you said just a couple months prior to the election we had this survey not even a couple months like a month and some change prior to this election we had this citizen satisfaction survey which is done every year by the pueblo city council only this year they included that question of municipalization like you pointed out and it showed like you say about two-thirds actually more a little over two-thirds support for breaking away from black hills energy and forming a municipal utility and then less than two months later we have the election and we're beat by about that same two-thirds margin and i i really feel that it was the money the money played the largest role in that Um, black hills energy was able to have commercials In nearly every commercial break on TV, on the channels that they advertised on, and that had a major effect on the people of Pueblo. They were able to really spread a lot of misinformation about, you know, kind of stoking the fears of the Pueblo community. And and admittedly, our community is kind of a a risk a a risk averse community, and so you know that really kind of played into Black Hills' strategy they painted it as a government takeover but really in in our perspective from our perspective what really was the government takeover was our city council giving black hills energy that franchise that exclusive franchise agreement in the first place which really amounts to a legislated monopoly um and it takes government to legislate a monopoly so i i feel that The reverse is actually true, but they they very effectively played that narrative repeatedly over and over and over again throughout, and it, it worked.
0: That was Jamie Valdez of Pueblo, Colorado. Being up against that kind of pushback from the incumbent utility, so it's difficult, it's maybe not super popular, or it's difficult to make it happen, even if you have that initial support, when it doesn't work out, what... Do cities get anything of it? It sounded like it worked out well for Boulder, but has it happened elsewhere where, you know, they haven't been necessarily successful, but they have gotten other things out of it?
1: Yeah, actually, this, well, this is a little bit of history that's fascinating for me as somebody who's been learning about this for now a long time and working in this area. But when I first looked into the history of cities that had municipalized or talked about taking over their electric company in, in recent years, in sort of the modern era, as opposed to back when the electric grid was being built, I came across Chicago. So it was like an old article from 30 years ago from Chicago, and it was about when their franchise agreement was up. So there's these sort of parallel laws about uh, in the energy system about which utility serves a city. So there are state laws that say everybody who lives here based on your address is served by utility X, And in over 30 states, that's how you get to choose. That's how your electric utility is chosen. There's a state law that says this utility serves you. But there's also a parallel agreement between the city and the utility in many cases that kind of governs how that utility can use public property and public right of way to deliver services. So, you know, imagine there are most likely there are some electric lines running down the alley behind your home. Or if you live in a suburb, they might be buried under the street, but they are running on or under public property. And cities usually have like a permitting process for any kind of business that needs to do something on public property when they need to dig up a street to do a repair or whatever, or, or what have you. And a franchise agreement is kind of a global agreement to sort of smooth that whole operation of how a public a private utility uses that public space. And they are time limited usually. So a lot of times they're about 10 or 20 or 30 years long but when they expire is sort of a logical time for a city to evaluate how's this relationship working and chicago pretty prominently about 30 years ago looked at its franchise expiration and they were having a lot of issues with reliability where commonwealth edison the incumbent private utility company which had a state-granted monopoly was doing a really crappy job keeping the lights on which is you know the basic premise of an electric (laughs) company so legitimately there were some issues there and and chicago started talking about taking over as as this franchise agreement expired and it led to a settlement agreement with the utility to make significant investments in substations and in power lines and distribution lines around the chicago area to improve reliability as part of that negotiation so it was it was a piece of leverage for chicago and and more recently, we have another example of that kind of leverage being exercised in Minneapolis. So I was involved in this, as, as you might imagine, living in Minneapolis myself and being a nerd for energy things. But the city of Minneapolis had a franchise agreement with Excel Energy, whose name may sound familiar from the conversation about Boulder, that expired in about 2013 or 2014. And so I worked with advocates around the Twin Cities area to try to get pressure the city or to encourage the city rather to say, what are our options when it comes to meeting the climate goals we've expressed? The city had just recently published its climate action plan, and it was pretty clear that like cleaning up the electricity system was a big part of that and that the utility had no plan to meet that goal. And so what the city was able to do was really interesting as they started talking about municipalization. They had people from Boulder come to Minneapolis to talk about what they were going through. The Utilities started to send a lot of people in suits to city hall to talk to elected officials. They even printed up this beautiful two-page glossy mailer and mailed it to every resident in the city of Minneapolis, telling them why a city-owned utility would be an utter disaster. But what the city got out of it was that when it renegotiated its franchise agreement, it got two things. It it shortened the agreement so that it had an opt-out provision at the five-year point, which we're very close to now. But it also got the electric and gas utilities serving Minneapolis to agree to a clean energy partnership in which all three parties, the city and its two ut- private utilities, would agree to collaborate to try to help meet the city's climate goals. And while that collaboration isn't necessarily completely successful in the sense of like having addressed climate change or like gotten to 100% renewable energy what it's really done is it's localized energy decision making in a different way like the every quarter the VPs of those utilities are in the room with city council members from Minneapolis talking about this energy planning and and cooperation that is you know more or less happening and and I think that that to me is an indication of what, how you can have this conversation about a takeover without actually having a takeover. And we did do an interview with City Councilmember Cam Gordon last year at the five year anniversary of the formation of the partnership, in which he gave a candid assessment of whether or not it was sufficient, but also acknowledging that value of that leverage.
0: Use a clip of Minneapolis City Council Member Cam Gordon.
6: I think we've got more public interest in how the utilities work with government, interest from the utilities and also from city government itself. Prior to the partnership, I think there was very little interaction between city government and even the community at large and the utility companies, particularly around um, clean energy and what we would do. I think most people saw their opportunity to influence those things occurring at the legislature because there was more state control and regulations. And I think the utilities saw the city as something to work with when they needed access to the right-of-way, when they were hooking up wires and when there was a power outage, those kinds of things. And so this really helped, I think, get communication going. We actually meet now and talk. It's helped us leverage different, policy changes, I think, on the city level where we've been motivated just because we want to be a good partner, so we've taken action to build up our efforts to move towards cleaner energy and more energy efficiency. We actually created a community advisory group that looks at it uh, and specifically looks at our energy vision and our climate action plan and how to implement those. From the perspective of somebody who worked hard on that energy vision and the climate action plan, I see a lot more infrastructure came to help support that work at the city level. And I also think that we have the utility companies at the table. Do you feel like
1: in terms of the outcomes, in terms of progress towards the climate action plan, that this partnership is moving things along fast enough to reach the city's goals. You know, there were some ambitious things in there. For example, I remember as as someone who has sat on that advisory committee, the community advisory committee that you mentioned, one of the city's goals was to retrofit something like three quarters of Minneapolis homes by 2025. Are we getting there fast enough through this partnership?
6: No, and probably not. So there's been a lot of things that have been very frustrating about the partnership. It really hasn't given us much more control over our energy future, direct control. Sometimes it feels like the city is still mostly doing all the work and the lifting, and we don't have that much influence. Um, There are certainly examples where we think maybe we're making some progress but one of the utilities will simply go and work at the state legislature and do things directly opposite of what we think are our our goals in terms of our energy here Typically, what we see is more interest in having the city cooperate with utilities in implementing the programs they're already required to do. And we hear this pushback from the utilities, but uh, we can't really do more.
0: That was Cam Gordon of Minneapolis talking about the city's clean energy partnership with local utilities. And now I think is a good time to take a short break before we get to the second half of our conversation. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. If you, too, think we need to address climate change at the local level, I hope you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your support makes this podcast possible, of course, but it also helps us produce invaluable resources for communities, including the research John and the rest of our Energy Democracy team does. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org slash donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. And if you're enjoying these clips and you enjoy hearing John talk like an energy nerd, you should tune into the Local Energy Rules podcast, another podcast from ILSR. We've talked about a lot of cities doing really cool things. Do you know of any state-level action that's happening?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of examples. Um, you know, one, one is going to take us back to the top of this episode and orange skies <laughs> uh, out in California. And I think it's a really prominent one. We've got one from the completely other side of the country in Maine. And then I think a few examples of ways that states spanning from California out to the East Coast are doing some interesting things, making options easier for cities around uh, climate action. But let's start with California. And those orange skies and the wildfires and everything that's going on there are absolutely crazy. I mean, the the social media images of what's happening there are really stunning. And And the sad truth is whether or not this particular wildfire was caused by the utility company. In fact, I've heard that it was caused by a gender reveal party, which just adds to my belief that those are ridiculous in general. But be that as it may. Uh, A lot of the wildfire problems that California has had in recent years are driven by two things. One is climate change and the fact that they are simply in this cycle of drier, windier weather as a result of climate change and hotter weather that is, you know, ripening the conditions for wildfires. But the second one is that the incumbent utility, Pacific Gas and Electric in particular, in northern California, has deliberately underinvested in the maintenance to protect the grid in order to divert money to shareholder dividends and has caused massive problems. So not only do they have the risk of wildfires, which have bankrupted the company, among other things, and caused untold property damage and loss of life, but then the utility in response to that legal liability that has been levied on them, which they had previously avoided liability for, has decided that they're going to preemptively turn off the electricity to avoid sparking wildfires. And while I generally applaud their notion that it is more important to protect life than it is to have the power on. The problem is that that's unfortunately not either or, that there are actually, in fact, people in hospitals or who are using oxygen machines or many other folks who rely on electricity to preserve their life. And it's really an essential service. And so California has found itself in quite a pickle and has really had to think hard about what to do with Pacific Gas and Electric. And there were many calls, especially when the company declared bankruptcy, for the California to simply borrow money at very low interest rates like they can right now and buy the company and make it public. I mean there's really no reason not to do that. I mean, they probably would have had to pass a law allowing them to do it. I, I can't imagine that PG and E shareholders were enthusiastic about a sellout, as most investor owned utilities aren't when the public comes calling for ownership. But it, it's clear that the company had very little value given all of its liabilities. And and on top of that, it's pretty clear that California Electric customers are going to pay for that liability, that wildfire liability, whether or not they own the utility. And so California is in in a situation right now where if they leave the company private, they will still have socialized all of the risk of operating an electric utility in California because they will be paying through their rates to cover the cost of wildfires. But they'll still have private profits, that there's only the shareholders of Fiji and e are the ones who are going to reap the rewards of operating that electric company. And so it's a really bizarre situation. And, and frankly, I'm still a little surprised that out the other end of it they have a settlement agreement with some fairly strict terms, but they still intend to keep that private company. Conversely, on the other side of the country, in Maine, where where they fortunately haven't had these epic natural and human-related disasters from their utility company. But if Amelia just had the typical story of large corporation screws customers, the legislature is considering a bill to buy out the big transmission companies that deliver power across the state and that have been making really questionable and expensive investments in expanded transmission capacity that have raised rates significantly for main electric customers. And so, Again, there's this issue of, you know, who's making the money and is it serving the needs of our customers in terms of both affordability and cost? This policy called community choice aggregation says you can just choose where the energy comes from for the customers in your city, the small businesses and the residential customers, without having to buy the poles and wires. And that's frankly, that's really what most communities are interested in. They don't really want to operate a utility And own all that infrastructure because what they really want to do is decide what gets delivered on that infrastructure And so this policy has what we've seen especially in California is that groups of cities band together to get economies of scale to get you know Hundreds of thousands of customers and then they go out in the market and they can shop around and get better deals So it's like the Costco model of energy purchasing where you say, let's go out and buy in bulk and we can get better deals as a result of it. And we can also negotiate for things that we care about, like local jobs and energy production or long-term contracts for clean energy. And so it's a really innovative policy that I'm hoping to see more of. And as a tool that can be used as well to like both do the kinds of things that communities want to do around climate and clean energy, but also give them leverage against utilities that might not otherwise want to do it by saying, look, if you don't do what communities want to do, then they can just leave your service. So I think that's actually a really important market check, a market based check on the behavior of private utility companies to say, let's give customers a choice around an option in which we don't really need a monopoly to make a decision about where energy comes from. Like cities can decide that for themselves on behalf of their customers.
0: So when there is more control at the local or at the state level, I'm curious if that has any impact on equity issues. Does that help when you have local control? Is it easier to address like health disparities, racial disparities that are related to energy usage?
1: I think that it is easier to do that. And I think it's What's really important is that you let communities decide for themselves what are the important issues that they need to address. So, you know, in the interview with Jamie Valdez from Pueblo and and in the interview we did with folks there a couple of years ago, Larry Atencio, their city council member, this issue of affordability was really important to them. They were concerned about the low-income households in their community basically being priced out of energy and having their electricity shut off. I remember we did an interview with folks in Atlanta and they were thinking very seriously about how does their climate action plan help to address racial disparities. You know, in Minneapolis, it's very clear that the climate action plan has a lot of specifics about eliminating disparities in energy burden and basically saying like, you know, we don't want race to be a factor anymore when we measure how hard it is for people to pay their energy bills. We wanna be able to solve that problem. And we don't often see those kinds of commitments at a state level. And so I think it's really important, you know, cities, frankly, are the places where the disparities show up because you have more diverse populations. And so you have significant concentrations of immigrant communities or communities of color or low-income folks That's just, you know, cities tend to be more of a melting pot and mixing bowl, if you will, of of the different kinds of folks in society. And so you see them having much more explicitly these commitments to equity in their work. Now, whether or not they're going to be successful, that depends a little bit. I think the more that we localize the power over this system, the more cities can actually act upon those desires and goals. I remember I did a great interview for Local Energy Rules with uh, Leah Bamberger. She's the sustainability director at the City of Providence, Rhode Island. They have probably one of the best climate action plans of any city. It's It's actually called a climate justice plan. And they really focused on asking their most burdened communities, like, what do you need us to solve? And they talked about things like local air pollution that cause asthma in their kids, not carbon pollution. But it just so happens that, frankly, the stuff that dumps those pollutants in their community and causes asthma is the same, is also throwing lots of carbon pollution in the air. So it gave them a different lens for approaching the issue that I don't think would have been developed in like a state climate policy, for example, because they were able to go out and talk to their communities and say, what's the most important thing that we address? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And then I assume it's easier for those communities to hold them accountable if it's local officials versus state or federal level.
1: Yeah. What is it? uh, Our colleague Chris Mitchell loved to talk about this fellow he interviewed down in Louisiana. I think he called it the strangle effect, uh, where it's like you can find you can find someone to go and strangle when you're frustrated (laughs) with how things are going if it's locally governed. There you go.
0: So for cities who have made major commitments, whether or not they've achieved them or not yet, is there some kind of common ingredient between them? You know, is it geographical, like they're facing, you know, wildfires or having issues with their utility already, or residents are really pushing hard for it? Or is it just, is is there no pattern?
1: I, I think there is a pattern. I mean, what I've seen successfully, frankly, and I I think credit has to be given to the Sierra Club nationally. They've had what's called a Ready for 100 campaign, and they've helped to put organizers in to work with communities around climate action and climate justice in a lot of these cities that have made those 100% commitments. And so they, they went in and they helped to pay for folks who were volunteering time otherwise, to give them time to go around and organize folks and and to elevate this as an issue that cities should care about. And so I think the most important ingredient is like is people caring about it and and people being willing to organize and go talk to their elected officials about it. And this gets back to what you said about people being more accessible at the local level. Like you don't need a thousand folks or like 10 lobbyists to convince the city to care about an issue that is meaningful for all of its residents. City council folks A few phone calls can make them sit up and take notice of an issue that's important. And I I think, frankly, most people who've gotten elected to city office across this country already know that climate change is a problem that they should deal with. But it's when residents organize and say, hey, this is something that we are going to vote on. This is something that's going to matter in your reelection campaign. This is something that we want to see action taken on is really important. And, And I think as well, it probably doesn't hurt that, frankly, a lot of the problems that we see with the existing energy system persist in a lot of different places, even if it's in a different manner. So you see racial disparities in energy burdens everywhere. It's not just a northern or a southern or a western issue. You see people who are low income getting shut off from electricity. So important in these days, of course, where we're all working or doing school from home and you need electricity to have internet access in order to dial into these different meetings. And it's why shutoffs have often been at least temporarily ended, even if they should be permanently ended. And then, of course, no community likes to suffer the effects of pollution from power plants that run on dirty fossil fuels. Everybody wants clean energy, especially in their community. And so it's, I think, no surprise that we've seen this rise up in so many different places, you know, that one in three Americans lives in a city that's made of 100% clean energy commitment. I mean, I think maybe maybe one other thing that's worth mentioning as far as a special ingredient is that I feel like a lot of folks have been motivated to act out of a sense of getting screwed by the incumbent utility power, right? so Pueblo, colorado, they're they're motivated because their prices were jacked up. In Boulder, there was this thing called Smart Grid City that Excel Energy invested in, which was going to supposedly offer all this kind of great, data that the city and the utility could use to help deliver energy efficiency and clean energy and it like went over budget by millions of dollars and the utility went to the commission and tried to get all that money from like you know, collect all that money even though there were a lot of ways in which they'd mismanaged it in Minnesota excel energy blew the retrofit cost for a nuclear power plant to the point where it was supposed to be 300 million and ended up being like 650 million dollars and they went to the state regulators and and were successful in recovering all of those costs, even though it was clear that a lot of the reasons those costs had been incurred was because they had horribly mismanaged the project. So there really is nothing like that sense of injustice to motivate people to look for something different or, or even just something simple like, you know, like I said in Chicago about reliability, Winter Park, Florida is one of the few cities that has successfully taken over in the past 20 years from their utility company, maybe past 25 years. And for them, it was just the blinking clocks on their VCRs because (laughs) the power would go out so regularly, even for a short period of time that you'd have to go around and like reset all of your clocks and never underestimate sort of that accumulated power of little irritations, I guess.
0: Local power fueled by annoyance.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's it can be it can mean a lot.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, John. I think this was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jess.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jess Fiaco, and edited by Drew Bershbach. The songs featured in this episode are Favorite Tweet and Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Fiacco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.